From American Radio Works, this is a Frontline Special, The Choice 2004. I'm Deborah Amos. As Americans choose their next president, both major candidates have their weaknesses. But past adversaries of George W. Bush warn not to underestimate him. George Bush isn't stupid. George Bush is canny. So do former opponents of John Kerry. He reared back on his hind legs and punched back. He's not in a feat preppy. In hour two of our special report, the shaping of George W. Bush and John Kerry as politicians. John Kerry knows enough to know that the world is not a soundbite world. If you want to know who George Bush is, look at the Iraq War. This is The Choice 2004, a frontline special from American Radio Works, the documentary unit of American public media. First, this news update. This is The Choice 2004, a two-hour frontline special from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. In the 1980s, John Kerry established himself in the U.S. Senate. The former prosecutor led investigations into Iran-Contra and other scandals. George W. Bush launched business ventures with mixed success and worked on the campaigns of others before winning the governorship of Texas in 1994. In hour two of our program, we look at how John Kerry and George W. Bush came of age as politicians, and how their very different histories and personalities might shape their approach to the presidency. The producer for Frontline is Martin Smith. The reporter for Frontline is Nicholas Lemon. Frontline narrator Will Lyman picks up our story with George W. Bush working on his father's 1988 presidential campaign. George Bush, a little louder, let's go! Bush, George Bush, a little George's boss that year was campaign chairman Lee Atwater. He was a master strategist with a reputation for aggressive tactics. Also on the campaign was Republican advisor Mary Matalin. Lee and George W. Bush became such fast friends because they were on a par of strategic thinkers that few people are. Strategy being the ability to see around corners, to understand where the uh, collective psyche is, they were strategic peers. One reason we did so well all over the country is because George Bush's supporters remain steadfast and true. We're in for a heck of a race. Sometimes the sons can say something their fathers can't, and that is we're counting on you because we want you to go out there and kick some of Michael Dukakis and kick it hard. Thank you very much. Afterwards, George W. headed back to Texas. He considered running for governor, but decided against it. Is Joe in, please? Is George Bush? Then along came an opportunity to revitalize the struggling Texas Rangers ball club. George was interested, says his friend Roland Betts. My counsel to him was, you are only known as the son of the President of the United States, and this is an opportunity for you to really do something great. We have the lousiest franchise in baseball, we can build a new stadium, we can do something that tr attracts attention, creates jobs, uh, you know, enlivens the city, and it's you doing it. And you're going to be a m in a much better position four or five years from now to then run. The plan was to build a new ballpark on seized land and then raise local sales taxes to pay for its construction. It generated some controversy. But Bush, good with people, came in and helped sell the deal. 
he became a partner and the club's most visible face. Hey, how you doing? By far, his most successful experience as a businessman was with the Texas Rangers. He was businessman as politician, in effect. Reporter Nicholas Lemon. He was the public face and, and in a way, front man for the Rangers franchise. He sat in a box at the Rangers games and shook hands. There was a big political component to that because they had to get the stadium built with public money. It didn't escape notice that he was the son of the president. And then he was surrounded with people like Roland Betts, who were very seasoned and experienced businessmen and who invested and piloted the project. And that was the one deal in his business career that he really did well on. In just a few years, Bush reaped a personal profit of over $10 million while building his own big league reputation. John Kerry was on his way to his second term in the Senate when the news came that Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. Initially, he supported the president. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. But as the possibility of war grew closer, Kerry grew uneasy. In December of 1990, Secretary of State James Baker testified in the Senate. Mr. Chairman, we have to face the fact that four months into this conflict, none of our efforts have yet produced any sign of change in Saddam Hussein. Kerry confronted Baker. In your testimony today, I am disturbed because you seem to have given up on sanctions. I don't know anyone who doesn't say Saddam Hussein doesn't have to get out of, of, of Kuwait. The issue here is war at the moment that it's ripe. And what I fear is that while you talk about the costs of waiting, the cost of one week of war may be far, far greater than the cost of several more months of exhausting the possibilities so that Americans will come together united and say, we did everything and now we have no other choice. On the eve of the vote, Kerry stood on the Senate floor and asked, are we really ready for another generation of amputees, paraplegics, and burn victims? There is a rush to war here. It sounds like we are risking war for pride rather than vital interests. Resolution 2, to authorize the use of United States Armed Forces pursuant to United Nations Security Council Resolution 678. On this vote, the yeas are 52 and the nays are 47. The Senate vote was close, 52 to 47 in favor of giving the president authority to go to war in Iraq. Along with fellow Vietnam veterans Bob Kerry and Tom Harkin, John Kerry voted no. Gentlemen, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Senator Kerry, let's start with you. Did your Vietnam experience affect the way you voted over the weekend? Well, it affected my perceptions of what the risks are and of what the downsides are. Kerry defended his vote on CBS. I'm confident we're not doing the right thing right now. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced that we were on a track that was violent in itself. We had the toughest sanctions in place ever put on any country in the world. Now, whether they would have succeeded in getting him out or not, I can't tell you that. But we will never know now whether they might have or whether they might have provided the opening for a diplomatic out. Gulf War was a success for President Bush. Kerry's fears of a long, drawn-out struggle were not realized. Ladies, 
Back in Texas, George W.'s name had come up as a possible candidate for governor. Wayne Slater reports on Bush for the Dallas Morning News. George Bush had been mentioned as someone who really uh, is a comer, someone who really could be somebody. And there were discussions among a number of sort of high-level Republican folks, money folks, and others. And the key instrument of those discussions was a political consultant who was working at the time in Texas, a guy named Carl Rove. Rove was sitting in Austin, Texas with another political consultant. And he said, you know, this guy George Bush, very impressive guy, I think I could make him governor. And here's how you would do it. And he explained how it would be done. Precinct by precinct, Rove had analyzed what it would take and then presented his case to Bush. But George wasn't sure this was the right time. George Bush was skeptical. He believed sort of the press, and the press was that Ann Richards was unbeatable. In fact, George Bush's mother even said to him, Barbara Bush said, you can't beat Ann Richards. But Karl Rove knew he could. Ann Richards had stepped into the national spotlight with her attacks on George Bush Sr. at the 1988 Democratic Convention. Poor George. He can't help it. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. But Ann Richards now admits that she underestimated George W. George Bush isn't stupid. George Bush is canny. He's also very clever and has tremendously clever people who work for him. I never underestimated Karl Rove. Strategist Karl Rove was there from the beginning. He convinced Bush to run. Let's make it official. I'm a candidate for governor of Texas. Thank you. Then came campaign director Joe Albaugh, brought in to help Bush do some hiring and firing. It's not something I enjoy doing, but it had to be done. So I was brought on board to, to become that enforcer of his will. Last aboard the campaign was Karen Hughes, a former Dallas TV reporter. She ran communications. Famous for keeping everyone on message, she said Bush's style was pure Texas. Texas is a very open, rough and tumble, um, say what you mean and mean what you say, plain-spoken uh, kind of place. It's pretty straightforward. There's not much subtlety. Eventually, the press corps would refer to Rove, Albaugh, and Hughes as the Iron Triangle. I would say that George Bush's organization is the toughest I've ever seen. And Richards. When I got up in the morning, I could be sure that Karen Hughes, or the chairman of the, Demo of the Republican Party, was going to have something negative to say about anything I had done. And it was like a steady drip, drip, drip on a stone. Texas is considered the third most dangerous state in the nation. No one, one of the most effective ad campaigns dealt with crime. Violent juvenile crime is up 52%, yet Ann Richards has done little about it. Crime is more violent, more random, more young than ever before in the state's history. Reporter Wayne Slater says crime in Texas was actually falling at the time. Didn't make any difference because the campaign run by George Bush and George and Karl Rove convinced people that crime was at its worst. They believed it. It was a weakness. They exploited it brilliantly. When it came time for the debates between Bush and Richards, 
Some reporters predicted that Bush would crumble without the protection of his staff. I want to ask you about your experience in business. Reporter Wayne Slater pressed Bush about his oil days. You were on the board of Harkin Energy, sold uh, almost a million dollars worth of stock shortly But Bush before. stayed on message. Um, are you preaching personal responsibility, but not practicing it in your private business life? Wayne, my business career is open for public scrutiny, and I'm proud of it. We ought to be discussing welfare reform, juvenile justice, education, ways to make Texas a better place for our children. At one point, the campaign turned ugly. Bush's East Texas campaign chairman accused Richards of hiring avowed and activist homosexuals to high state offices. The issue of homosexuality was very much an issue. In fact, there were flyers placed under the windshield wipers of parked cars at religious fundamentalist churches on Sundays that showed two men kissing. It was very much involved. The flyer attacked liberals for encouraging homosexuality in the schools. It had no connection to the governor's race, but some observers suspected it was part of a coordinated attack. The pattern when you look at President Bush's career is one of very, very, very aggressive campaign tactics. Reporter Nicholas Lemon. There's a pattern of groups popping up to spread basically dirty rumors about the opponent and do it in a way that serves the interest of the Bush campaign but enables the Bush campaign to say we have nothing to do with these people. And it's happened over and over and over again. He clearly has said to himself, I am not going to lose an election for being too gentlemanly and nice. He didn't lose. Social conservatives and the religious right liked what they saw in Bush. Many years before, he had watched his father lose in this once heavily democratic state. In 1994, Republican George W. Bush was elected governor of Texas. Coming up, Senator John Kerry teams with Republican John McCain to heal wounds over Vietnam. And Republican leaders tap Governor George W. Bush as presidential material. When we got through, I said to him, you must be considering running for president, and I, I hope you do, because it seems to me you have a good seat of the pants for the job. You're listening to The Choice 2004, a frontline special from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. Hour two of our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. This is The Choice 2004, a frontline report from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. In the 1990s, John Kerry, the junior senator from Massachusetts, spent much of his energy on issues related to Vietnam. He investigated claims about prisoners of war and work for normalized relations between Vietnam and the United States. 
1994, George W. Bush challenged Texas Democratic Governor Ann Richards, considered by many to be unbeatable. Our look at the two major presidential candidates continues with Frontline narrator Will Lyman. One day in 1992, John Kerry's old roommate, Dan Barbiero, was visiting John in Washington. We were in the car and we were driving to a meeting and he said, I met this fabulous woman. He said, I think this is really the, the woman. I said, that's fantastic. And, and he said, well, there's a, there's a, it's kind of a problem. I said, what's that? He said, well, she's extremely wealthy. She's the Heinz heir. I thought, that doesn't sound like a problem to me. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, he said, yeah, but, you know, everybody's going to say I'm this and that. I said, listen, from what you tell me about her, go for it. You, you know, don't even hesitate. I mean, who cares what they think? I thought of him as being a very serious, interesting person that was attractive. Teresa Hines Carey. But I was a little, you know, guarded. And I think he was guarded, too. I know he was because he was afraid of getting into a serious relationship. On their first date, they visited the Washington Mall. It was a very beautiful evening. And he said, have you ever been here at night? I said, no. So he stopped the car and we walked. John led Teresa to the Vietnam Memorial. And there were people with flowers and there were people kneeling and there were people just looking and there were people crying. And John didn't speak very much. Every now and then he'd point to a name on the wall a friend, including his best friend. At the time, John was involved in the biggest initiative of his Senate career, closing the book on the Vietnam War. Every Memorial Day since 1988, Vietnam veterans and friends of the missing had come to Washington demanding a full accounting of the more than 2,000 soldiers that never returned from the war. There were theories about them being held underground in deep caves and shuttled around between Hanoi and Haiphong and Bulgaria, et cetera, and it just went on and on and on. But these are serious people who were saying this, and it was hard. Former senator and Vietnam veteran Bob Kerry. I just don't remember how angry the advocates of getting a full accounting of the POWMI issue were. Ignoring his advisors, John Kerry put himself in the center of the controversy, insisting that he chair a new Senate investigation, the Select Committee on POW-MIA Affairs. Also serving on the committee was another Vietnam veteran, John McCain. The investigation lasted 14 months, during which time Kerry made five trips to Vietnam, chasing down rumors about still surviving POWs and MIAs. He interviewed nearly 200 witnesses, and he got the Pentagon to release over 1.5 million classified documents. Vietnam was what John knew best and was what he, I think, felt most deeply about and felt that he could make the biggest contribution to. Kerry's longtime friend, John Shattuck. And felt that it would be important to try to heal the wounds of Vietnam, both domestically and internationally, that doing something about Vietnam would would have a great international significance, as well as having some impact on the domestic wounds. Just a thousand plus pages here, a document with 12 signatures. It's a unanimous report. 
which declared that there is no compelling reason to believe that any POW MIAs remain alive today. Appropriate. I'd like to begin by thanking Senator Kerry for his fairness, determination, and nonpartisan. Teamed up with John McCain, a former prisoner of war who initially was very negative about what Kerry had done in criticizing the war, but came, I think, to see the seriousness of Kerry's commitment to healing the wounds and felt, I think, a kinship with Kerry. The final report paved the way for the normalization of diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Vietnam. In Austin, Governor George W. Bush was earning a reputation as an effective governor. Oh, yes, sir. Good to see you, David. Thank you. He had good rapport with Democrats who controlled the state legislature, and he pushed through some education reforms and large tax cuts. Reporter Nicholas Lemon says the one-time fraternity president seemed to have found his calling. Deep inside, he's a politician. When you're with a politician, they want to look you in the eye, they want to touch you, they want to be with you. They like having that one-on-one transaction and winning people over. You can have 60 seconds with President Bush and you come away sort of glowing. Um, and that's a classic politician skill that, in fact, his father didn't have nearly in the measure that he has. Democratic state legislator Paul Sadler, an ally of Bush's on education issues, says George W. was also developing his own management style. He's not one to sit in the room by himself and overly analyze a problem. At least I've never seen that, that side of him. It's just not really what I consider to be his strength. And so what he does is he, he surrounds himself with people that can give him advice. He's not one to reflect, to wring his hands, to uh, wonder if the decision he made is right or wrong. He knows you don't bat a thousand. Former Bush aide Clay Johnson says even on matters of life and death, Bush didn't seem to agonize or doubt. A great example of this was the Carla Faye Tucker uh, execution. This is a woman who had become very religious in prison and a very devout Christian but had conducted a, uh, just an awful, awful crime. And yet, religious leaders, political leaders, community leaders from within Texas and all across the country and across the world were writing the governor, asking him to have mercy on this woman. They pleaded with him to issue a stay of execution. Paul Sadler says once Bush's mind was made up, he did not reconsider. I'd been out of town for a couple of days and I picked up the phone and called the governor's mansion at 7 o'clock in the morning, the day of the execution. And I said, Governor, this is Paul. I was just calling to check on you, make sure you're all right. I know this has been a tough time dealing with this. He said, no, Paul, it's not been tough at all for me. She's guilty. I think she's guilty. The jury decided she was guilty and she ought to be executed, period. I have sought guidance through prayer. I have concluded judgments about the heart and soul of an individual on death row are best left to a higher authority. Carla Faye Tucker has acknowledged she is guilty of a horrible crime. The courts, including the United States Supreme Court, have reviewed the legal issues in this case, and therefore I will not grant a 30-day stay. May God bless Carla Faye Tucker, and God bless her victims and their families. In 1996, John Kerry was facing a tough re-election battle that would put his 12-year Senate record on trial. I need takers here. His opponent was Massachusetts popular governor Bill Weld, 
considered a Republican star with presidential prospects. The two candidates faced off in eight televised debates. Senator, you've been in Washington for 12 years now. Why do so many Massachusetts voters lack a clear idea of what you've accomplished there for the state? Andy, I think that's a very fair question, and I think it's one of the difficulties of the United States Senate and the difficulties of what gets covered. Kerry uh, listed very, a slew of legislative accomplishments, from getting more cops on the streets to youth job programs and flood relief. These are not the things that make the front page, senator, but they are the stuff of being a United States senator, and I'm proud of them. Governor Will. You're right, Mr. Meiger. A lot of people don't know Senator Kerry's voting record. That's why I came here tonight. I'm going to tell you Senator Kerry's voting record. We were senator landing pretty good punches uh, in the 96 campaign. And uh, he reared back on his hind legs and, and punched back. Bill Weld. Uh, he's not an effete preppy. You know, he, he does have the aristocratic background and, and manner of speaking. So you could be misled into thinking, here's a preppy. I'm going to make mincemeat out of him. And you'd be mistaken if you thought that. Can you please explain to the commuting residents of Massachusetts why they should pay a 50 cents a gallon increase in the gas tax? What's the fairness of that? You and your friends in Washington have this notion that everything's for free. You can keep reducing I don't have friends reducing. in Washington. <laughs> well, Governor, Governor, that is not what Newt Gingrich and Pat Robertson and a lot of other people say. But the debates did reveal Kerry's problems as a communicator. Even though I'm opposed to the death penalty, Governor, I voted for it. And I voted for the bill because I thought it was more important to put cops on the street in order to catch the people who commit the crimes. And in order his friend Jack Blum says Kerry often slices his arguments too thin, explaining and then explaining his explanation. John Kerry knows enough to know that the world is not a soundbite world. And he is always tempted to give you the nuances that he knows and to tell you that the problem is much more complicated than you think it is and to worry about that complexity. And maybe that is his biggest single weakness as a candidate. In the end, Kerry found a way to focus on the issues, health care and the economy, that mattered to most Massachusetts voters. As he made his way up to the podium on victory night, it was John Kerry who was being asked when he would run for president. In April 1998, George Bush was in California when he was invited to the home of former Secretary of State George Shultz. Shultz had wanted the governor of Texas to meet with some policy experts. We said, well, why don't you come over to my house and I'll gather some of the usual suspects around and we'll talk about policy issues and he accepted. So he sat here in this uh, living room and I had uh, Mike Boskin and Condoleezza Rice, John Taylor, who's now Under Secretary of the Treasury. They were looking for a candidate for 2000 with good political instincts, someone they could work with. What impressed me the most was every once in a while something would come up and he'd say, I don't know much about that. Why doesn't somebody talk about it a little bit? I think the single most important things that came out of that meeting were a group of people basically saying this guy could be really good. Economist Michael Boskin. You know, he's straightforward. He asks tough questions. He's a guy we can get behind. When we got through, I said to him, you must be considering running for president. And I, 
I hope you do because it seems to me you have a good seat of the pants for the job. Bush now had one of the party's elder statesmen in his corner. And by late 1998, money was pouring into Bush's campaign coffers. That fall, Dallas television evangelist James Robison stopped in Austin. Bush shared a personal revelation. He said, I feel that, that I'm supposed to run for president. And he said, I can't explain it, but I believe our, my country's going to need me at this time. I really do believe that, that we do need, as our founders said, divine providence. I believe we do need wisdom from above. I think he sought that, and I don't think that is something that we should take lightly. I think he believed, as he prayed, as he said to me, I believe my country's going to need me at this time. Next on Life Today, his dad was our president. A few months later, Bush would appear on Robison's TV show. But George W. Bush's agenda goes way beyond politics. I wish I knew how to make people love one another. We Coming up next, some surprising thoughts from a possible presidential candidate. that we were going to talk to you and this about the question that everybody's asking since there's so much discussion. The governor was reaching out on a nationally syndicated program to the evangelical voters he knew he'd need. So this is your big opportunity. Uh, I never ran for governor uh, of Texas to be president. It didn't enter my mind when I was 21. It didn't enter my mind when I was 31 or 41, truthfully. I mean, I didn't conduct my life to try to figure out how to be president. And so when all this speculation started, it caught me and my mother totally by surprise. <laughs> but I am interested. And I'm interested because um, I'm concerned about the future of our country. That's why I'm interested. But as he played down his political ambitions. I, and I've got to make up my mind whether or not an administration can lift the spirit of America. That's what I got to make up my mind about. He was already in charge of a sophisticated and well-funded political machine that would carry him into the primaries. Early on, his resolve would be tested by the surprising challenge from Senator John McCain. We had been drilled in New Hampshire. We took a different approach in South Carolina. Bush aide Joe Albaugh. We had to run a tougher campaign against John McCain, and we did that. This was for all the marbles. We were either going to make it or break it in South Carolina. So I will rebuild the military power of the United States of America. Bush ran a well-organized and aggressive campaign with the full support of the Republican establishment. But McCain, the outsider, complained he was the victim of dirty tricks. Former Democratic Senator Bob Kerry. I mean, I was hearing reports that he was being maligned about what he did when he was a prisoner, uh, that he was that his service was being uh, clouded as a consequence of not doing enough uh, for other uh, prisoners and uh, that uh, he was being uh, maligned uh, as well because he adopted a black child. And it just seemed to be reprehensible character assassination. At one rally, a veteran named Thomas Birch, with George W. Bush at his side, accused McCain of betraying veterans. Uh, and he's always opposed all the legislation, be it Agent Orange or Gulf War, health care, or frankly the POW-MIA issue. He was the leading opponent in the Senate. He had the power to help these veterans. He came home, he forgot us. But fortunately, we found the camp. Let me tell you what really went over the line. Governor Bush had an had a event 
Bush tried to disassociate himself from the event when confronted by McCain on CNN. That fringe veteran said that John McCain had abandoned the veterans. Now, I don't know how, if you can understand this, George, but that really hurts. Yeah, yeah. Let you, me, should, let me you, should, you should be ashamed. Yeah, let me speak. You should be ashamed. No. Now, that if man, you want to, now, if you is want he to responsible hear, for what someone else says? Well, this same man, he stood next to him. Well, let him respond on that point. Let me answer that question. Yeah. You should be ashamed yeah, of let me sponsoring say an event with that man there. That man wasn't speaking for me. He may have a dispute with you. Let me finish, please. Please. He's listed as your Let me finish. Let me finish. The man was not speaking for me. If you want to know my opinion about you, John, you served our country admirably and strongly, and I'm proud of your record just like you are. Bush seemed to apologize, but the damage had been done. The press noted that this Bush had a certain toughness his father didn't. You can disagree with me on issues, John, but do not question, do not question my trustworthiness and do not compare me to Bill Clinton. He was going to need that toughness through a long, close race and right up to election night. Thank you, thank you. They're still counting, they're still counting, and I'm confident when it's all said and done, we will prevail. It's, it's, it's just an interesting period, Ken, where we're all in limbo. And, uh... Reporter Nicholas Lemon. Bush seemed a little sort of confused or disoriented thrown for a loop, not knowing what to do. What have you told your state staff about planning for a session? Have you told them to keep going forward? Yeah, I have. I mean, I've, everybody's keeping their powder dry. It's, it's, Interestingly, it's, you just felt it all pulled together. I mean, the moment when I really felt it was when James Baker went to Florida and he stood before the cameras and he was just pure steel. Let me begin by saying that the American people voted on November the 7th. Governor George W. Bush won 31 states with a total of 271 electoral votes. The vote here in Florida was very close, but when it was counted, Governor Bush was the winner. You felt like either the president himself or Bush Incorporated, if you will, just got together and decided, okay, we're gonna do this. Still to come, George W. Bush's first term, September 11th and the Iraq War, and John Kerry's mounting attacks on the president's approach. George Bush, to put it quite simply, has run the most arrogant, inept, reckless, and ideological foreign policy in the modern history of our country, and we are going to turn it around. This is The Choice, 2004, a frontline special from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. You're listening to The Choice, 2004. The second hour of our program continues in just a moment from American Radio Works, the documentary unit of American Public Media. This is The Choice, 2004. A frontline special from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. On November 7, 2000, Democratic presidential candidate Al Gore got almost half a million votes more than George W. Bush did. But in the Electoral College, where the race is decided, the outcome came down to a series of recounts and court battles in Florida. A 5-4 Supreme Court decision ended the election in George Bush's favor. 
in the final segment of our report on the two major candidates for president, George W. Bush's first term and the actions of the president and John Kerry as the nation moved towards war with Iraq. Frontline's Will Lyman is the narrator. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. George Bush began his presidency with both personal and party problems. He'd had a very narrow win. Uh, he came into office with a very weak mandate. David Frum was a speechwriter for the president. And then there was this question mark over his head. The country had a feeling maybe about his personality, but uh, he didn't have much of a record. So uh, he, um, he was a gamble for the country. This is our first event in this beautiful spot. And uh, it's appropriate we talk about policy that will affect people's lives. The conventional wisdom was that George W. Bush would govern much like his father had from the center as a moderate. But Bush was more conservative. My job is to lead. He launched far-reaching plans for a tax cut, education reform, and faith-based initiatives. We have minds to change. We got some laws to pass. Our course is set. And I believe our case is strong. The Bush administration started off extremely successfully, but soon Bush's rapid-fire assault on the status quo caused growing tensions within his own party. In late May, a Republican senator defected, shifting control of the Senate to the Democrats. It wasn't clear just where the president was going to go next. When I think about it, the end of that summer, it's, it's the lack of energy and momentum that is the strongest impression that I, that I have. The tax cut went through Congress, but pushing it through Congress destroyed the Republican majority in the Senate. And after that, things bogged down. So I think if you were to look at the Bush administration on Labor Day of 2001, you would say it's not quite clear how they're going to fill the time over the next three years. On September 11, 2001, the message of the day was supposed to be education. The president was in Florida visiting a grade school. 60 on page 153. At the time, Richard Clark was the Bush administration's chief of counterterrorism. Well, there was a fairly long period of time when he stayed uh, in the classroom in Florida. I, I blame that not so much on the president, but on the party that was with him. During this period of time, it, it was clear what was happening. They were being told through multiple channels uh, that this was a major terrorist attack, and it was ongoing. It was still coming. Uh, so it took them a long time to get their act together. Thank you all. Uh, today, we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. It wasn't until that evening that the president returned to the White House. The cabinet members had assembled in the White House bunker, uh, and he came in very determined. Uh, and I remember his line, he said, I want to kick some ass. Uh, he was mad, and the overwhelming emotion that you could see was one of, I've been punched, and I want to punch back. The obvious target was Afghanistan. But Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward says another enemy came under discussion right away. That night, Don Rumsfeld says this is an opportunity to strike Iraq, perhaps. And Wolfowitz, uh, his deputy, was very worried that Afghanistan would not be a success. And Wolfowitz felt 
very, very strongly that we needed to put a success on the board and felt that, always uh, that Iraq was going to be easy. But the president and Cheney reject it and adopt very clearly uh, an Afghanistan first policy, but it's background music. In November, a U.S.-led coalition attacked the Taliban and al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But all the while, Bush was planning to bring the war on terrorism to Iraq, says his former aide, David Frum. The president began to talk about the problem of Iraq from his very first days as president, at the same time as he talked also about the danger from Iran. But he always talked about it as something that he was going to do before the end of his term. How precisely he was going to do it, I am sure he did not know. It is clear that President Bush wanted Saddam Hussein out of power. Reporter Nicholas Lemon. There's an element, as there is often with this president, of thinking, my father wasn't quite tough enough in how he handled something, and I'm going to handle it in a tougher and more aggressive way. It's a testament to Bush's strength as president that he was able to take what had been a kind of fringe position that is an invasion of Iraq, and make it a mainstream position, almost on his own, by force of will. What I think happens, uh, Bush looks at problems, and he, he told me, he said, I'm a gut player, I play by instincts. And I think the first step is, do we have a problem? Saddam's a problem, and his mind is, fix it, get it solved. You know, Colin Powell, fix it. Condi, fix it. Rumsfeld, fix it. George Tenet, fix it. America must not ignore the threat gathering against us. By the fall of 2002, Bush was pressing the case hard. We cannot wait for the final proof, the smoking gun that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. He was staking his presidency on it. Reporter Bob Woodward. If you want to know who George Bush is, uh, look at the Iraq war. Uh, it's his war. It was his decision. You ask anyone who's close to him, in his cabinet, in the White House, a friend, and they just jump and say, this is a George Bush decision. The night of September 10th, Senator John Kerry attended a dinner in Boston honoring his efforts to normalize relations between the U.S. and Vietnam. The next morning, he was back in his Senate office and, like everyone else, watching the disaster on television. Kerry aide Jonathan Weiner. He was so angry about what these uh, people had done to the United States, what the terrorists had done to Americans, that there was this pent-up energy that needed release and couldn't be released because there wasn't action to take as a senator as opposed to as a president at that moment. He agreed that the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan was right and necessary. And no one disagrees that even but as he watched the administration push for war in Iraq, he was skeptical. But what this administration has failed to do is to advance... He told an audience in New York that the administration was failing to make its case. for doing so and the evidence for that rationale. That fall, 2002, Kerry would face a critical Senate vote on whether to grant the president the authority to use force in Iraq. So let me be clear. The vote that I will give to the president is for one reason and one reason only, to disarm Iraq of weapons of mass destruction if we cannot accomplish that objective through new tough weapons inspection 
in joint concert with our allies. Kerry's speech was full of caution and warnings. If we go it alone without reason, we risk inflaming an entire region, breeding a new generation of terrorists, a new cadre of anti-American zealots, and we will be less secure, not more secure at the end of the day, even with Saddam Hussein disarmed. In the end, Kerry's reservations mattered little. It was the vote two days later that counted. Kerry voted for the war resolution. He'd been boxed. The Bush administration had chosen to box him and all the other Senate Democrats. Kerry aide Jonathan Weiner. You either vote with us, in which case you're responsible for it too, and we're going to do whatever the heck we please, or you vote against us and allow Saddam Hussein to be uh, held, uh, not held accountable, and you not having stood up for America's strength. It was intended to be a box. During that march in April 2003, it looked as if the war was going according to plan. Baghdad fell in a matter of weeks. And on May 1st, George Bush landed on the USS Abraham Lincoln and declared victory. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. But soon it became evident the Bush administration had failed to plan for the aftermath. The world's most powerful military has been unable to put down an insurgency that has now claimed over a thousand American lives. Republican leaders have begun to worry about the course of the war. But reporter Bob Woodward says the president doesn't acknowledge any second thoughts. I asked him, I said, do you have any doubt? And I asked it in the starkest terms, because Tony Blair had said when he gets hate mail saying, my son died in your war, and I hate you. Blair said publicly, you can't get letters like that and not have doubt. I read that to President Bush in the Oval Office, thinking he might even say, well, you know, Blair's got a point. He just ignited and just said, no doubt. I have no doubt. And I spent a lot of time looking for doubt, looking for that moment when he kneeled on the floor and asked for guidance or forgiveness or something, and I found no such moment. George Bush, to put it quite simply, has run the most arrogant, inept, reckless, and ideological foreign policy in the modern history of our country, and we are going to turn it around. John Kerry had his doubts about the war in Iraq, his ambivalence rooted in that other war 35 years ago. A new chapter in America's relationship. Vietnam is really at the heart of John Kerry's capacity to lead and his experience and history as a leader. Kerry's friend, John Shattuck. Having been a soldier in that war and then having been a critic of that war and having seen the deep divisions in our society that have been opened up by the war, Kerry came to understand the lessons of that war and now wants to try to apply them today. Democrats embraced Kerry for his record as a war hero. 
During the campaign, Kerry has made heavy use of his former crewmates from Vietnam. He was our commander-in-chief 35 years ago, and nothing would give me more greater pleasure than when he takes over the White House, that we have a veteran's veteran in the White House. But it would be his anti-war past that Kerry's enemies would seize upon. John Kerry is not a fit commander-in-chief based on our experience with him. We've provided to you a press release, a letter... Swiftboat vet John O'Neill, Kerry's 1971 opponent, went back on the attack. It condemns Kerry for his misrepresentation of both our record and his. The accusations that John Kerry made against the veterans who served in Vietnam was just devastating. Randomly shot at... It would set the tone for a tough and often mean campaign from both sides. I heard George Bush get up and say, I served in the 187th Air National Guard in Montgomery, Alabama. Really, you know, that was my unit. The lives and conduct of two young men a long time ago would open up old wounds and old divisions. They come out of a really severe split within the world they grew up in. They represent very different policies for the United States government. Reporter Nicholas Lemon. Kerry will govern tremendously differently from Bush. Kerry will clearly try to get the United States into a more cooperative position with the rest of the world. Kerry seems to take government very seriously as an exacting profession that one does in consultation and cooperation with others. He wants to serve, serve not just in the military sense, but also in the government sense. I think Bush is more ambitious than Kerry. You feel that Bush really wants to change the world in a fundamental way. He really wants to be, you know, what they call a transformational president. If you're a Republican, if you want to be a really transformative president, you've got to be conservative. You've, you've got to really push the edge of where policy can go, both in foreign policy and domestic policy. Um, if you're a moderate, you don't leave as big a footprint. I think this is a president who wants to leave a really, really big footprint. In days, the debating will be over. The ads will stop running. The pollsters will stop polling. The voters will choose the President of the United States. This two-hour Frontline Special Report was produced with American Radio Works, the documentary unit of American Public Media. The producer for Frontline is Martin Smith. The reporter for Frontline is Nicholas Lemon. The producer for American Radio Works is John Bewin. The Choice 2004 is a Frontline co-production with Rain Media Inc. To find audio and a transcript for all two hours of this program, visit AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can also find information on how to order CDs of this program. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Funding for The Choice 2004 is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, PBS Program Challenge Fund. Major funding for American Radio Works also comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. American Public Media.